You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everybody. Jackie Lewis here. Welcome to this second season of Love, Period. This season, we're focusing our conversations on my new book, Fierce Love, a bold path to ferocious courage and rule-breaking kindness that can heal the world. Each of my friends will be helping me to think about the themes in each chapter, nine practical practices that can help us love ourselves, love our posse, and then love the world into healing. It all starts with you, and we're going to give you practical tips to make these practices a part of your life. Today's conversation is inspired by the fourth chapter in my book, Fierce Love. Show kindness and affection wildly. This is Fierce Love Made Real. I thought it would be wonderful to bring in my friend Frank Schaefer for this conversation. He just wrote a book about love, about building new kinds of relationships, about deciding what's important and prioritizing our families and our friends. Frank grew up in a fairly famous evangelical family. And he would say his family is responsible, actually, for much of the politics of the evangelical church. He's reformed, he says. And he's an artist, a writer, and a primary caregiver for his grandchildren. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Frank Schaefer, I'm so glad to spend some time with you today. How are you? I am extremely well. All the better for seeing you. And um, I'm thinking fondly back to a few days ago when we were in New York together. Right on Rod Coburn and Allie Coburn's roof. Wow. That's right. Odd place to meet, but hey, that's how it is. We were up on on top of Wall Street uh, talking about things that didn't exactly fit in with that part of town. (laughs) Right. You know, it's a strange place to launch a revolution from, but there we are. That's where we chose to do it. (laughs) That's correct. That's correct. Frank, speaking of meat, um, someone asked me earlier today, how do you and Frank know each other? How would you tell that story? How do we know each other? I have no idea. Maybe we met somewhere (laughs) in another dimension, and now we're trying to remember. All I can remember is we were on a bus somewhere, and then before that, I knew who you were, and Mm -hmm. before that, I knew friends of friends. So the six degrees of separation went from five to four to three to two to one, and then we were in the middle of nowhere on the Vote Common Good tour, and you were a spokesperson, and I was as well. And then all of a sudden, we were doing something together in in an event, and then in another event. Right. Um, And and so it just kept growing. And then I read your book and became an enormous fan of the book, found myself at the rooftop event promoting it as if it was my book, and then remembered I was there to promote my book. (laughs) (laughs) Frank, you were very generous. You had me, you had John Pavlovitz. You were like, these are books, these are books. Yeah, but see, here's the difference. I hadn't read John's book. I looked it over, Mm -hmm. and I was promoting him because he's a friend of mine, and he was in the hospital at the time. Yeah. And I wanted to to do something for him. Your book was different. And I wound up emailing you quotes from your own book to you saying, you said this on this page and you said that. And it reminds me of the same thing that I've been saying in my book. And I realized very quickly that, in fact, our two books really did belong together being presented. And um, so then I got back to my friends who were doing this rooftop event. And I said, listen, um, I don't want to do... 
uh, a launch from my book by myself. And I want you to include me in Jackie's event and or the other way around. Or if she wants a separate event, fine. But I would like to be up on the platform with Jackie. And that's in the end what turned out to be. So in in, in the end, I was kind of demanding that you be <laughs> part of my book launcher. I be part of yours. I don't know how you put this, but I, did, I after I read the book, I said, no, this is, I want to be able to stand up and talk about Jackie's book and not just my book in the context of the overall issues we address together. It really did feel like, and really does feel like, we gave birth to uh, what, fraternal twins would that be if they were twins yeah. in different bodies? I don't know if that's yeah. biologically possible, but uh, it de- it did really feel, Frank, like you and I had both absorbed something, uh, mm. interjected something in the zeitgeist, in the world needed about love, and then tried to make meaning of it and put it back out. Yeah, and you know, I'm sure people who were at that event or who were watching it or who now are interested because of what we're doing here today and go back and watch the event, which is available on Vote Common Good and also on my social network stream and yours and so on, they're going to think we somehow rehearsed something because it looked it looked like we planned this, but actually it really wasn't rehearsed. It was a very natural fit. So your book, Fierce Love, is, is you know... Um, when I read it, I thought, okay, this is this is the second half of my book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, because my thesis is that we should not judge people on the basis or ourselves and our lives on the basis of our current definition of success, which is all about career, position, and money, but rather on the basis of the quality of our human relationships in our lives to other people, and that that is how a happy life is lived. And then your book goes on and defines that and says, those relationships rest in a loving relationship. Here is an entire book on what I call the pattern of love, how you right. fall into love. And, and, and it was sort of crazy because, um, as I told you at the event we did, my only regret when I read your book was that I read it in a context in which my book was already done, closed out at the publishers, because mm-hmm. I would have... Uh, changed some things. I would have quoted you throughout mm. the book, um, and 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 made use of it. And that's you know we'll we'll you know I'll if I ever that's, write another book I'll be quoting book. you. Yeah. That's my next book. There we book. go. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. your next book, Frank. You were so. I just want to say, um, you know, you and I have both been reflecting on love and kindness and relationships, mm. and just to say publicly in this space how very kind it was to have someone with your. Background, your uh, published record, your you know your filmmaking, your art, your all your gifts mm. to read my book with such intention and send notes back. I mean, Frank, that doesn't happen. So thank you for that. It was a very generous, affirming, loving thing to have mm. Frank Schaefer read my book and be like, on page thirty six, this yeah. was you know that was really beautiful. I want to well, thank and you I for was that. copying other people because yeah, I want to make were. sure that people. <laughs> I want to make sure that people I know who say they read people's books but don't. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I love your book. I want to make sure that they understood that. No, 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 no. You have got to read this. So I, I wanted to spread that around a little bit with some folks um, and let them know that this was for real because I, I, I kind of fell into it as a, someone looking through something because maybe we could talk about it sometime and it drew me in. And by the time I was reading stories about your sexuality, your experience of love, 
mm-hmm. your your part your partnership with your husband, the story in Canada, which mm. you should tell and not me. Which, by the way, I came home and told to Jeannie, my wife, uh, and said, "Listen, you should really hear this sometime. It's an amazing story, but you've got to hear Jackie tell it." You know, when all that was happening. Um, it was for real because, you know, we're both sort of public people. You do, you yeah. speak in public and, you know, there's that great scene in, in all that jazz, um, which is one of my favorite movies made a long time ago, where there's two people who are sort of Hollywood types publicly saying how much they love and admire each other. And of course it's all BS. And as you know, that happens in religious world as well. People sure stand up, this is my best friend, blah, 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 blah off screen as it were, it's not real and yeah. so on. And I was just so um, enchanted to actually find myself in a position, I know this is gonna sound craven and insincere, but of actually meaning what I was saying in a, pu- in a public event in which you're standing up with someone else uh, promoting their work. And I really do, I really do mean it. And so, you know, I find your book um, absolute nece- necessity for people to read who want to understand how we have gone wrong in terms of our priorities in life. And I just I just think it's a toss up between the way I put it in my book and the way you put it in yours. We take a different approach, but the, the message is the same. And I spoke last night in an event um, launching a book and the way I came up with it, and I, and I hope, uh, and I was thinking Jackie ought to hear this, and so I'm gonna tell you, because I think it was pretty good. I said, look, the way we measure success in our culture is your job title and how much money you have. Mm-hmm. I said, the, there's only one way to actually decide whether your life has been successful and it has nothing to do with that. And I said, I know this sounds a little Oprah-esque and it's a little too poetic, but here's <laughs> how I would put it. You can, you know, you, the way one really judges oneself in a truthful manner that reflects what life's really about is this. It is what you see written in the eyes of the people who know you best. Mm-hmm. And if you if you see joy and if you see peace and if you see happiness when they're looking at you, that is their expression. You have been successful as a human being. If you see fear, if you see uncertainty, if you mm-hmm. see if you see terror would be even worse, if you sure. see disdain, you have not been successful. That's it. That's your mirror. Not how much did you earn last year? Mm-hmm. What is your position in your company? And yeah. I said, if, if we can recalibrate society that way, and by the way, I mentioned your book. Um, I said, if we can recalibrate society, as my friend Jackie puts it, by by a standard of fierce love that's what that is a whole different culture than the one we're now living in and so i really do think that's a unified message that you and i are out there presenting with these books frank i think that's right and um i'm so really kind of proud to be among the number of people who are trying to think our way, love our way, uh, you know, dream our way mm. to a better world, to a, a healed world, a whole world. Mm. Uh, Michael Lerner, right, his book Revolutionary Love, yeah. Valerie Kaur, her memoir yeah. of Revolutionary Love. And even, you know, um, Linda Sarsour, you know, mm. No Time for Bystanders. I know I'm making that up. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think there is something in the water, something in the zeitgeist that's a response to the other stuff that's in the water. Yes, and, I know, agree. The, right? The way, the way we have come to a place of such, uh, you know, rancor, uh, mm. us, them, violence in the language, you know, vitriol, hatred, pain. I think people want, yearn for kinder, peaceful, you know, loving— 
world. And and so, you know, I'm I'm struck by your kindness in these moments. And I just wonder, you know, you've had a really fascinating life, <laughs> right? A little too the, fascinating. <laughs> I'm trying to get the ringing out of my ears. <laughs> your your fascinating life is in the public square. Yeah. But I I and I was really struck by stories you told in the book about where 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 kindness is grown in you where mm-hmm. where you have mentors who teach you about what love and kindness is do you want to mm-hmm. tell a story about yeah i mean i i have a chapter in the book on my kind of tribute to feminism which i think yeah. is an ev- evolutionary step i don't think yes. it's just a social movement i think it's like when we lost tails in evolution or we stood up on our hind legs and decided to you know walk across africa and populate the rest of the world there's a there's a there's a moment in in history when things aren't just chosen anymore. They're almost foreordained. And I think feminism is one of those things. And in the course of that chapter, I start with very personal reminiscences of the women who literally changed my life. Right. One of them was, you know, I'm dyslexic. And I went to, I was sent to a boarding school when I was 10 years old in in the United Kingdom. And here I am alone it's not even a grade behind, a lifetime behind other students. Mm-hmm. Um, Mrs. Park, Eunice Park, wants to cast me to sing in, a, in an operetta HMS Pinafore. Right. Uh, and, and I'm saying, hey, you know, I can't even read the script. Um, and she says, well, what if, what if we sing it together? So here she is working alone with this little kid who's completely lost, basically teaching me the lyrics by singing them, singing them with me. Another couple, a lesbian couple, actually, who were in my parents' ministry and were, quote unquote, unmarried ladies who lived together. Nobody would say what it was back then. But of course, they were a wonderful lesbian couple. She was a former opera singer, you know, sat me down, played me music, showed me art. And as I look back, I realized that, you know, actually, I, I don't know if this is your experience, Jackie, but if you think about it, there's always there's very few people in your life that actually change your life. Mm-hmm. And it happens that the kindness of, of a number of women in my life up into the present with Jeannie, who I've been with 52 years now, the, the people who reached out were always there was always here is the context. It was always to share something beautiful with me. Mm. So Mrs. Park said, it doesn't matter if you can't read. I'm going mm. to teach you the lyrics and you can still sing in this operetta this little school play we're putting on because let's see if you can learn something to music. This Mm. is before anybody did any of the studies, okay? This is just kindness Mm. of her heart. Um, We're talking the early 1960s. This would have been 1962. Um, Jane Stewart Smith, this opera singer, you know, sits me down and starts playing me records of Italian operas and at the same time showing me artworks by people like Bruegel the Elder. And how does she get me interested as a seven-year-old or eight-year-old boy? She says, look, there's two bottoms sticking out of a window. They're pooping into the river. You know, now she has my attention. <laughs> now you have to you look. Know, and I'm sitting there going, wow, yeah, so they are. And of course, then you can't pry me away from Bruegel the Elder. It's like he paints weird stuff. Um when I, when I look back, the women who did this, uh, what ties them all together, none of them knew each other. It was not only kindness, but it was seeing somebody who was sort of lost and, and trying to figure out where they belonged mm-hmm. and offering them beauty on a silver platter. You know, I mean, Jane, literally, it was art books, opera, tea and cookies. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 and Eunice Park, it was an old piano that hadn't been tuned for 20 years in the dining room, sitting there with this little boy spending hours teaching him the lyrics by singing them with him until he memorized them because he couldn't read well enough at the time. Uh, 
you know, at the time, a kid just takes this for granted. Looking back, I just say to myself, these are my angels. These are my yeah. saints. They rescued me. Oh, my gosh. I love that. I love that. I love that you were rescued. I love that you were given beauty with tea and cookies, which is also beautiful. That's it. And that, and the way you took all that in, Frank, you know, mm. comes back out to your to the little people in your life. You know, the yep. way you uh, introduce your grandchildren to art and to beauty yep. and to music and all the love that pours out of you to them. Uh, in that well, way. I use it it's as beautiful. an example, actually. In the book, I say, listen, you know, I talk about have children. I said, I don't mean biologically you have to have a child. There's a right. lot of people who don't have children that actually, if I can use this as a verb, they mother the people in their lives. Yep. And I don't mean that Absolutely. in a gender-specific sense, yep. more than some biological parents do. Yes. And, and, and Jane, at that point, was my mom. You know, and I'll go even further, and I've used this example before in public with you, but for instance, right now, you have a podcast. What do, what do parents do for children? They yep. let them shine. You are now in the role of a mother to me. Mm-hmm. You are my parent right now because you've yes. invited me into your space to do what Mrs. Yes. Park did for me with that old piano. You're yes. saying, okay, yes. Frank Schaefer, faults and all, I care about you, I love you. I'm going to give you a moment of space in my space mm. and let you share your story with somebody. Well, excuse me, that's what parents do. So right now, Jackie, you are my mom. Oh, and good. I like. That. I mean that literally. <laughs> yep. And yep. and then and then you know when I was at that public meeting talking about your book and promoting it, all I was doing was being your parent for a few minutes. Yeah. Because that's what good parents do. They promote yep. their children. And yep. so when I talk about have children, uh, fall in love, I mean this sense in the biological sense. Obviously, there's love in in biological connection. But but these things are available to everybody because we can all be somebody's caregiver. And and that's and I look back at my life and the points that have changed me most is where somebody stepped up and became my caregiver. And, um, you know, that can be a brief encounter or it can be a long friendship. But but I think those are the most rewarding relationships. And, you know, studies bear that out yes. in terms of what makes people happiest is not when you grab something. It's when you give something to someone else. And this isn't psychobabble. This is for real. They study this. What yeah. brings the greatest satisfaction? It's paying for the groceries for someone in the in the row, you know, in front of you who doesn't have the, the money and they're scrambling around in their purse. They don't have the money to pay for it. That will carry you longer in terms of a sense of your own self-worth than anything you could have bought that day. And yeah, these right. studies affirm this. So yeah, I'm not true. making this stuff up. I'm not yeah, making you're not. it up. <laughs> and, and experience affirms it, right? I mean, exactly. I love the way you talk about this mothering that's not gendered, yep. that is... Uh, an opportunity that all of us have to offer, but also many of us have been touched by an angel in the way you were touched Mm -hmm. by those two angels. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Hi. 
I love telling the story in my book about my good Canadian, right? Mm, you, you and I grew up with the Good Samaritan story. Yep. Uh, this outsider who does everything he can to care for a wounded guy on the road, mm. picks him up, takes him to an inn, pays the bill, you know, make sure he's well. And I was, uh, you know, not a child, but kind of a child still, just right out of college. And, you know, kind of moneyless and on a tight budget, uh, traveling to a wedding with my boyfriend. And, you know, we had this crazy car accident. And I, mm. I you know, I was married to him. Sometimes I'm nervous to say I was married because I'm married again. But mm. I was, it was my new husband uh, on, in a car uh, driving across a beautiful, sunny September day and ended up turned upside down in the car, you know, flipped mm. around and on the sunroof. And, you know, when we finally land on the tires and there's gravel and blood and glass in our hair and faces, we are alive. And he's injured pretty badly, but we're alive. And in the hospital, when he's kept by the nurses, I don't have anyone to take care of me. Mm. Our parents are not close by. My car is totaled. I don't have any money to speak of. And this woman, this Canadian white lady, comes across the lobby to me, sees me crying, and just wraps her arms around me, Frank, and holds me while I cry. And then just, what can I do to help? And I, I just couldn't believe how kind she was. Mm. That she saw my need and responded with just grace upon grace. Mm. Takes me to a hotel, pays the bill, gets me food, picks me up the next morning, takes me to the rental car place, you know, leads me back out to the highway. Mm. Just everything I needed. She really did hold me, like parents do, which mm. is what you're describing. Mm. She held me in a space of love and kindness, tethered to her. Mm. I was able to stop flipping around, right? Stop mm. tumbling in this scary liminal space where I was afraid mm -hmm. and hurt, frankly, and brokenhearted. Mm -hmm. So I don't know her name anymore, Frank. You know, yeah. I'm kind of jealous when I hear you name your folks, your angels. Mm -hmm. She's lost to me in her name, even though I can still see her face. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know about the lost name. Maybe, maybe there's some kind of mystery or blessing in that. Because she's every stranger, right? She's every stranger that stopped and gave me directions. Mm -hmm. She's every stranger that uh, showed up at church and brought me a gift of, of love and kindness, affirmation. Mm -hmm. She's every stranger that shows up for all the people who need a stranger to show up. Mm -hmm. She's in my imagination as, a, as an angel as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what is that? Like, what is the thing, Frank— that makes someone go way out of their way, way across the line, across the borders, to do love. What what is that? What makes what's what makes that? It's a good question, and it, it, that your story brings up another story that I know of. It's not my story uh, that happened in the area of Massachusetts. I'm in in one of the mill towns here, where the cloth mill burned down. That made a mm. particular kind of cloth that was very popular in the in the 80s and 90s, and it basically burned to the ground. And the family and the man who owned it kept on all the employees, went into his own savings and paid mm. their full salaries for a year and a half out of his pocket 
until it could be rebuilt with no knowledge whether the company could ever get going again out of a sense of personal obligation to his employees. Um, and, and uh, you know, when I heard that and it happened during the time I've lived in Massachusetts, I was just thinking the difference between that reaction of his and the quote unquote business ethic of most corporations where the differential between what the executive earns and everybody else has just grown exponentially over the years. Yes. And, you, you know, I think that both of us and, you know, pe- people look at my book or they look at your book and they're saying, well, you know, what would the result be if people did this? It would change things in the sense that if, if employers saw themselves in the position of caregiver, rather than hearing a story of yours and your angel Canadian or me and my opera singer and thinking, oh, well, that's very nice in private. Yes, I've done some nice things for people individually. Mm -hmm. Understanding that if we lived in a country where the sense of obligation from employer to employee or within families, the family dynamic was as caregiver first and as business person second, they would come back and say, oh, well, then how would you make a profit? And my view would be you would you would make a larger profit. So first of all, you would be happy. So would the people you're working with. Yep. You know, the first corporation that comes along and applies the lessons of, of your book, Fierce Love, or the lessons uh, that I talk about in my book, where there's actually a legislative agenda in the last chapter saying, hey, here's what we ought to do. You know, let me just give you some examples. Let's say there was a company down there on Wall Street where you and I were on the rooftop um, or any corporation anywhere that mm-hmm. said, look, from now on, we're running a nursery in the corporation that's going to hire top class caregivers, pay them well. And we're doing it for our employees so that a parent, I didn't say mom, a parent, any parent can bring a, a toddler to work. And the nurseries within the context of the corporation. And by the way, from now on, if the if the caregiver calls up to the 18th floor and says, uh, by the way, um, Joe, your son is throwing a fit and crying and, and, and not used to being here, they can take 10 minutes off and go down and work. What would... You know, what would the result be? So, you know, we have we have these crazy little things where we think it's a big deal if there's a lactation room for somebody to pump breast milk. <laughs> right. Excuse me, we're mammals. Of course, there should be a lactation room. Yes. Um, we think it's a huge deal if we provide a little bit of health care for somebody. Excuse me. How about telling people that they can have a child, be welcome in the corporation, take time off with them? that it's not related to gender, paternity right. as well as maternity leave. And if they need time off during work to come to the company-run, paid-for nursery school, we hope they do because if they're happier and the child is happier, maybe they won't do what's happening right now. That Again, today in the Wall Street Journal headlines, how many people are quitting their work because they've yeah. come back from COVID. They're so angry that now they're stuck back in their corporate world. They want to go, go home and isolate again with their toddler. Yeah. Um, or, or just have a life sure. along yeah. with business. So I think yeah. when you look at your book, when you look at Fierce Love or you look at my book, Fall in Love, Have Children, etc., there is a direct application to what I would call the real world. You know, what I would tell someone in a discussion is, no, no, Jackie's not being sentimental. She has written a guide to the to the reformation of American ethics in business, if you would only listen. Because I if you, right. if a yeah. corporate leader would read mm-hmm. your book if he said, listen, everybody everybody in my company is now going to read Jackie's book, 
They could change the dynamic of the entire corporation. They would have loyal employees who would stay with them forever. They would they would make an enormous profit. That's not why they would do it. But the idea that somehow, I guess what I'm getting at is this, the idea that somehow Fierce Love or my book Fall in Love Have Children somehow is ethics or theology or be nice or because Jesus said so. No, these are the most practical books you can read if you want to actually have a company that, that turns a profit and keeps its employees forever. And I dare say that because I think that if we could treat people as humanely within the corporate world as that Canadian woman treated you, the, the loyalty to that company by both the customer and the employee would be massive. And yeah. American business employers, our nation, our tax system is just plain stupid because it doesn't reflect the ethics of the stories you tell in your book. And if it did, we could change this culture. And I really believe that. I don't think that there's a business world and a private world. I think it's all one world. And if we flew by the directions of your book or what I'm calling for in my book, we could change it. And it would actually benefit everybody, including the shareholder. It's insane that they don't do it. I think you're so right, Frank. I don't even want to jump in. I just want to go, amen, amen. But that's true. I mean, this these, this call to love, this call to reorder our values, yeah. or maybe it's a call, um, Frank, to remind ourselves of who we are. Is that yeah. too optimistic? I don't know, right? Like this idea that we, like, you know, we, you know, you said it, we, we walk out of a cave, we, we march across Africa. We're all African-Americans, everyone. We are indeed. We walk across Africa. We, we understand Ubuntu, right? This idea that we are who we are because we are all in a community together. And then yeah. we are separated from that part of ourselves. We forget. I think we forget that we yeah. know that we're better together. That, that the real, the, the best, strongest mm -hmm. uh, way to survive in the world is together. Uh, we're not... You know, all the cultures are not as crazy as we are, Frank, right? right. I mean, Asian And they haven't cultures. been in the past because if they were, Jackie, none of us would be here. Right, exactly. So, If, so, if this so, was our evolutionary history, none of us would have made it. We're talking about getting back to the future or getting yes. back to the past to get to the future. Sankofa. Yes. Remember that it takes a village. Remember the hunters and gatherers bringing back all the stuff and sharing it in common. Yep. Those are not... Christian values, the, the idea of sharing and taking care of each other is a human value. Yeah. And it is about love. And that love is fierce when mm. it causes us to imagine that we are inextricably connected to the other person, that mm -hmm. your child's hunger makes my stomach growl. Right, yeah. that you know, your mom's lack of health care means my auntie doesn't have health care. Yeah. I think that you're right that this should be required reading. <laughs> okay. Yes, I think so too. And For I think businesses. you, I think, and, and, and I'm too tired to do this. Yeah. And you know, God forbid, but in all seriousness, if I, if I was sitting there running a corporation right now and half of my employees who had come back to work after COVID are saying, you know, we don't like the new normal any better than we like the old normal. What are you going to do different to keep us? Because they're quitting in droves. I mean, it's headlines everywhere. People either aren't coming back. This idea that somehow that's a virtue of socialism because they got some benefits, crap, that's ridiculous. Of course it's not. They're not happy with, the new, with what's being offered because they had a moment to compare. Listen, my daughter is a CEO of a company in New York that does investment for green energy. And she was telling me, and I actually quote her in my book, saying, look, one of the things that really annoys me is the way you're not allowed to bring human values, what you learn as a human being, into the business world as a woman, because somehow that's unprofessional. And I said, well, what do you mean? And then she told me, and I told her to write me an email, quote it in the book, and she says, it's real simple. 
I have people within my company saying, you know, you're only a 50-year-old woman only in the sense that you've made CEO of your company. How did you do this? And she says, I tell them in meetings sometimes, well, I did this and that business-wise, but really how I did it was um, as a mom, I learned with my two children, which I had before I got into business, how to manage things and do things. And she says, you can hear a penny drop. There's total silence. She says, nobody, everybody looks at their shoes. You're not supposed to bring up personal stuff. And as a <laughs> woman, you never talk about your family because you're supposed to all be all business. And she says, it's so insane because... You know, after COVID, she said, I was talking to a bank president and he says, Shh, we got to talk quietly because I just put my, my little girl down for a nap. So she says, here you've got a banker admitting he has a family. And she said, you realize that's revolutionary. Nobody, you know, this male model of business in America is you don't even admit that you have things that you're passionate about that aren't in business. It's supposed to all be work when you're at work. And COVID broke that. And that's why so many people now are saying, to hell with this. We don't like the way it was. And this can't be the new normal again. So my daughter's saying, you know, from now on, when I talk about why I have been successful in business, I'm bringing what I've learned from being a, a parent in as much as what I've done in business with the European Union and other fancy things she did. And she said, to hell with them. Secondly, I'm not lying anymore. When someone says, where are you? I'm not saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to a meeting. No, no, I'm doing a school pickup and I'm not telling you anymore that I'm in a meeting or that I'm taking care of a sick parent or whatever. I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let the family and my other interests show. And it's not all about business. And see, I think that is what your book and my book also say. And that is there aren't two lives. So your sort of official business life and then your private emotional right. or spiritual life. It's all one thing or it's nothing. At least that's the, that's the way I see it. I think you're right, Frank. What I think is really wonderful about your, your book and the kind of call to action mm-hmm. is a call to... Uh, reordering our steps would be a, a, a kind of a gospel song. A call to reordering our steps and what's important, to anchoring ourselves in what's important. Love is important. Kindness is important. Family is important. The vocation of being a family is yeah. an important calling. And if we have a whole life, not a fragmented life, I think mm-hmm. you're saying, in the whole life, the values of compassion, tenderness, um, patience, uh, you know, the ability to see each other, uh, support each other, yeah. sharing resources, sharing wisdom, those values will make a better human mm. and therefore make a better worker mm. and therefore make better uh, business and therefore yes, make better so government and therefore make better church and therefore make yeah. better synagogue yeah. because the humans, the humans are better. The humans are the humans are loving. The humans are kind and gentle. The humans are not competitive and are constructive together. This yeah. is my vision. This is what this is what drove me to to kind of nine years of contemplation about this book and nine months of giving birth to it. Yeah. Is can we have a revolution, Frank, mm. of values? Mm. Can can we? So I guess I'm asking you a question now. Can we have, do you still have hope that we can I, have a revolution yeah, of values? Yeah, very much so, because of the very fact of what we've been talking about here just a few moments ago, and that is people quitting work and taking a look at their lives because COVID interrupted the stream 
and forced us sort of like a memo from Mother Nature to say, what do we actually care about? And it turns out we don't all instinctually care about having power over others or the most money or the most prestige. When people are given the opportunity to discover a little bit of humanity in their life, they get a taste for it. You know, it's like the young, ambitious, striving parent, uh, male parent, for instance, who basically says, you know, I never knew what this was all about. I would have done it years ago if I had known the pleasure I have taking care of my my child. And, and until it happens, they haven't a clue, uh, you, you know, how they really feel because they've never been given the opportunity. So I do have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope because I'm an optimist based on the fact you and I are sitting here talking. <laughs> and I mean by that, that, you know, if you look at that trek out of Africa, for instance, and you think about Lucy, the first hominem uh, that is so named, um, shares the name with my granddaughter, Lucy, or vice versa. But anyway, if you think of that story where she fell out of a tree and broke her bones, and that's how they, these, the, they when they put it back together and they looked at the breaks in her bones, they just, at first it was just a fossil discovery, but now they're saying she probably died falling out of a tree where she had gone either to hide or to sleep for safety. You know, all of a sudden now she's a real person to me. You know, right. little Lucy is not yeah. a fragment of a fossil anymore. It's a little girl that fell out of a tree. And, you right. know, I'm seeing my granddaughter there. The fact, the fact is, the, the only reason any of us survived is because there were other Lucys that fell out of trees. And there was somebody there who was a stranger who picked them up. There were Canadian mothers in Africa. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's great, Frank. I'm going to yeah. quote you on that. Canadian yeah. mothers in Africa. There I were Canadian that. mothers in Africa before <laughs> yeah. you met your Canadian. That's and right. I really believe that. And so when I look at the trajectory of, of, of our human journey, we're not here because uh, fancy stockbrokers. We're not here because of, of billionaires doing space shots. We're here because there was a, a Canadian mother in Africa who picked up another Lucy. So she survived and she's your great, 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 great grandmother. And we're related because she's mine too. That's not fanciful. And when you look, for instance, at some of the biology I talk about in my book, love is not something Oprah talks about that exists out there in drama and movies. Love's an actual biological reaction because evolution knew that parents would kill all their children if they didn't experience love for them because it's so maddening sometimes. Love is a biological reaction because we would all kill all our mates if it wasn't for the fact that our brain chemistry actually says, no, no, you love this person and it's going to be the most immense, the most powerful, the most overwhelming thing that you can ever feel in your life. Right. And we're going to give you this gift because otherwise life's just too damn annoying. Yeah, and and right. you're, you're not going to get through it. So when you see that love is actually woven into the biological fabric that means that Lucy and the people like Lucy could walk out of Africa in groups that would be self-sustaining and care for each other and share, it begins to make sense that what you're calling for in your book, Fierce Love, is not some sentimental attachment to goodness. It's the actual biology of happiness. This is science. It's not sentiment. It, yep. and, 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 and so I just think it's such a powerful argument um, that you and I are making because truth, I, okay, I'm going to go way out on a limb. Jackie, truth is on our side and yes. the truth of experience is on our side. That's and right. you know and I know that unless someone is a sociopath, if you can get past that onion layer of hard shell and I don't admit anything and you get down to the next layer and the deeper layers, every single one of the people you and I know will admit at some point that what they really care about in life is not what 
our culture tells them they should care about. It's deeper things. Right. And it's just we're afraid to go there. So it's the young father who's the fancy guy earning a million bucks a year on Wall Street. If you really dig down, what he really cares about is he's heartbroken because his his boyfriend left him. Or he really cares about the fact that he's had this baby now and he's discovered, what have I done with the rest of my life? Why did I wait till I was 47 to finally commit to somebody? The yeah. best stuff, I should have done this years ago. Why is he saying that? And you, you must, as a pastor, talk to people who tell you these things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think our deepest yearning, and I... I'm I'm probably I'm sticking this quote in the wrong mouth, but I think it's my professor, Jim Loader, who mm. said, we're all yearning for the face that will never leave us. Yes. We're just all yearning for a face that will look over the crib and keep coming back, that will yes. look across the room and keep coming back, that will yes. go to sleep with us at night and spoon us and keep coming back. We yes. want to be seen, known, and loved by a loving presence that will never abandon us. Yes. And that same professor says, love is the non-possessive delight mm. in the unique particularities of the other. Non-possessive delight. I love that. So, Frank, let me ask you, what do you know for sure about love? Um, you know, you're a storyteller, so I'll tell you a story of what I know for sure about love. I was driving home from New York this morning because I did a book event last night, and getting gas for the car, was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday. I went down and came back. Um, I took a turn out of a gas station and ran the side of my car, caved the door in on a fire hydrant. Oh, no. Then ran over and rented a car. was very lucky to get one because the car, the doors all caved in. I knew some police officer would stop me mm. and told my wife, I've just wrecked our car. And Jeannie was very kind about it and <laughs> knew that I would be driving off very shakily, insisted I stay down there the night because she said, you're too tired. You're going to crash another car, if you, you know, the rental car on top of this. But while I was gone, and I didn't dare ask her to do this, even though we've been together a long time, she took the car that I had done this to while I'm gone with her own busy life and, and went up to a body shop and had them tell her what was going to be involved, all to put my mind at rest hmm. so that I could come back knowing that because little things in life like this hang over you more than the big ones. You know sure. how that is. Yeah. That's that to me says it all. In other words, you know, she was my community at that point. She didn't have to do this. I didn't dare ask her to do it, but she had my back. And mm -hmm. when you have people in your life who have your back, it isn't big, huge gestures often. It's like your Canadian angel. You know, she did do a big thing for you, but it starts with just coming over and saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Right. Yeah, what can That's I do for you? Right? And so, yeah. you know, for me, I love my wife. We've been together forever. But let me explain something to you. You know, and the, re the reason I passionately love her is because um, Jeannie steps up and does things. And I like to think maybe I do similar things in return. So it isn't the big drama. It's the fact that you're not alone. And when, when you and I look at the, the stories, and there's so many thousands of them literally about the measurement of loneliness in our culture. Mm -hmm. yep. The pain out there is ridiculous. Yep. And, and 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 if I can just put it this way, it's because there's too many people who don't have Jeannie or a Canadian in their life who says, yeah, you drove into a fire hydrant. And of course, it's your fault. She never said that. But, you know, while I'm on the you. road, she, I got, I got you. you. Yeah, I got so you. that your mind yeah. can be at rest. This isn't yeah. so bad after all. I'm taking care of this for yep. you. Got and that's love. That, by the way, is a good definition of love. That's what love, love looks like. I love it. That's what love I got looks you. like. I got yeah. you back. I got you. 
And yeah. Frank, when when I say you know fierce love, mm. what, what do you what comes up for you? Just fierce love. You know it, that's an interesting thing, and I would put it this way: I would say the the greatest joy you ever have in life, the experience of giving love, is when literally you you expect nothing in return. Mm-hmm. So that it's those times someone reaches out to to love you, in which nothing is expected in return. In other mm-hmm. words. It's a demonstration that they believe in the intrinsic worth of love Mm. by itself, not what it can lead to, not Mm. what you get out of it, but literally that that moment in and of itself, if this is all that happens, it was worth it. So that, um, Mm. you know, I think that's the beauty of all real relationships is the intrinsic worth of anything. In other words, if you don't believe in the intrinsic worth of art and you just think it's a means of making a political statement, I'm sorry, it's crap. If you don't believe in the intrinsic worth of love and you think that it's a way to get things out of people, it's crap. If you don't believe in the intrinsic worth of music and you think that it's all about a record deal, it's crap. The people in life who do things that really stand the test of time are the people who at the time didn't know they were doing anything huge and it was just the intrinsic worth. So... You know, I I always have a big problem with art criticism that tries to figure out what the politics of some piece of Beethoven or Art Tatum piano playing or, you know, Duke Ellington's, you know, what was he trying to say through the music? Okay, how how about what he was trying to say is I love music. Yeah, I hear that. And I I think it's the same thing with love. You know, parents don't love their kids so they can grow up and support them in their old age. They love them in that moment more than anything else, and they can hardly express it. And if that's all that ever happened and they all died 10 seconds later, it was worth it. And I think that's that's intrinsic love. So to me, it was a long answer, but fierce love is love in which you experience the intrinsic worth of love without even thinking about it. And it's so powerful that it blows away all other considerations in the sense that you're not doing it for a reason. You're not expecting anything in return, whether it's the giving or receiving. It's like a bright light at that moment. You know, when we were together in New York, yeah. uh, the next morning I drove home up, up, up and, and for a moment, everything, you know, New York sometimes just looks so beautiful. Um, and I thought that this 10 seconds on the FDR, you know, co- going up, coming out of the city with the mist over the river and, and the light on the buildings made this whole trip to New York worth it. If this is all I take away from this trip, I'm glad I did it. And I felt the same thing when we were on the rooftop together. You reached over and you took my hand. And I remember I kissed your hand and you kissed my hand back. And I thought to myself, okay, (laughs) okay, let's just say that was the only thing that happened that night. That, that That was a moment that I'll always remember because it cut through everything. And you didn't do that because then I handed you a $10 bill. I didn't do that to look good. That was a natural reaction of two people that were just having a meeting of the minds. And it was the intrinsic worth of that moment. To me, that's fierce love. It's the moment when it's just about the moment and nothing is expected in return. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. It totally does. Love all by itself. All by itself. All by itself is what I hear you say, and I agree. That's fierce. Fierce fierce. Fierce as, as can be. Yeah. Frank Schaefer, thank you so much for your beautiful book. Thank you for your beautiful art and your life, the text of your life that has so many wonderful lessons mm. for us about wild kindness and fierce love. Thank well, you, Frank. And Jackie, thanks for having me on. And I'll put it this way. Um, thank you for today 
sharing your power as a parent with me and parenting me for the time we've been together and giving me a chance to be your child for a little while. I really appreciate it. You're a good kid, Charlie Brown. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you, Frank. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> thank you so much for coming and listening to this conversation today. It means the world to have you here. In my book, I tell the story in Chapter 4 of a phenomenal Canadian woman who literally saved me when I was in trouble. And everybody won't have the chance to you know, save a stranger. But let me leave you with this. You might be the boss on a team and have a chance to decide what kinds of benefits you want your employees to have or what a safe working place looks like. And that can feel like a business decision, but what if instead it's a decision made in fierce love? What would that policy look like? What would the work environment be like if you lead with fierce love? Or you live in a neighborhood or in a building and some of your neighbors are older than you and can use some help. What if you make a daily practice of imagining one small act of kindness that you'd give to a senior in your building? It might change their world, but it also might change yours. <laughs>